This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. More classified documents found where they should not be. And we are not talking about former President Donald Trump. We are talking about the current president, Joe Biden. What is going on with this case? What happened here? Well, joining us now to give us all of those details is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Can you explain this to us? What happened? So, look, what happened was uh, there were documents that were marked classified that were found in an office if uh, in D.C., the building known as 101 Constitution. It's right across the street from the U.S. Capitol, but it is a, a space where Joe Biden had a think tank. It was uh, the Penn Biden um, uh, agency, and they were closing up shop uh, towards the end, uh, towards his uh, 2020 campaign, and his legal team found in a cl- locked closet a manila envelope that had some classified documents inside of it uh, and ultimately contacted the White House, contacted National Archives uh, and made the uh, immediate handover uh, of this information. The, the questions here remain, Simi, why uh, did the pr- president have these documents, but also why did it just come out now when this was learned of last November? Yeah, exactly. So is this what will happen as a result of this, if anything? Well, I mean, look, the uh, the president says that he doesn't know what the documents are. He, he says that his lawyers advised him to not ask what the documents are. Uh, uh, and the correct kind of uh, process was uh, was undertaken. I talked to a national security lawyer yesterday who said that this case varies differently from the case involving Donald Trump because Joe Biden's team immediately started making phone calls. That said, the Department of Justice is aware of this. Uh, the attorney general has put a Trump appointed U.S. attorney in charge of this to kind of look at the matter and generate an inquiry. And then at the end of that inquiry, the AG will make a determination as to whether a special counsel needs to be put in place or criminal charges or whether this can just be kind of pushed to the side as uh, as kind of the unintended process or consequences of what can sometimes be a messy transition. Right. I was going to say, it sounds to me like what they need to do is beef up that process to make sure classified documents don't leave the White House. Precisely. And and look, we should make a, make a point here that this was uh, a dozen or less, maybe 10 documents, some of it linked to national security, some of it reportedly linked to Ukraine and Iran and the United Kingdom, but it was still less than 10 and they were immediately handed back the National Archives. Also, Archives was not in the middle of, of undertaking some kind of request for these documents. So it's unclear um, the importance of them or or just, you know, what kind of chain would be involved with it. Again, very different from what happened with Donald Trump. Again, uh, you know, he took them with him. Sometimes presidents take the documents. The difference was Donald Trump refused to give them back and is now caught up inside a big legal battle over it. Okay, so how does this change? Is this changing now because you've got the new, you know, Republican slash 
slight majority sworn in in the House of Representatives, I would imagine they would want to jump all over this. For sure. And yesterday, uh, a couple of Republicans had already come out to say, look, there's a double standard here when it comes to Democrats. Joe Biden is caught with uh, with classified documents and they're trying to treat this as a non-story, which, you know, realistically, there were some members of the Democratic Party, including Adam Schiff, who said that this is problematic because these documents need to be kept in uh, secure environments. So there are questions about that. Yes, Republicans would like to conduct uh, an investigation into this. But again, they're simply doing this as an apples to apples comparison to Donald Trump questioning why a raid wasn't conducted at the homes of uh, of Joe Biden when at the end of the day, again, it was 10 documents in a locked uh, uh, office, not a secure facility, but it wasn't at his residence and it wasn't dozens and dozens and dozens of boxes. Okay, so uh, will the president be saying any more about this then? I mean, it's possible. He made these comments yesterday when he was in Mexico again, saying he wasn't aware of what was going on, but that his the White House was fully cooperating well at the same time, remaining at arm's length from the Department of Justice so as to not seem like it's kind of meddling in the factors. We may hear about it uh, again today. The president is dealing with some personal matters with uh, with the First Lady this morning. But as far as we understand, the White House is cooperating with both the Attorney General the uh, U.S. attorney involved and with the National Archives. Okay, so also, and with that, I guess, was there some comments made this morning as well with this whole disruption at the um, FAA? Yeah, I mean, look, this is a huge deal right now. 4,000 flights in the United States have already been uh, delayed because of this. And there's a concern here, Simi, that this could snowball and domino throughout the entire week before schedules are able to get back onto track again. The president says that the transportation secretary uh, has been uh, advised of this, that he and the FAA are looking into this and that everyone is to report back to him this morning. We understand flights are starting to uh, land, uh, take off again, rather, at uh, airports around the United States after, uh, you know, this hours long delay because of FAA infrastructure. Uh, The Committee on uh, Transportation and Infrastructure also looking for information now on FAA operating procedures. But again, this is a situation that obviously comes after the Southwest meltdown over the holidays that the administration, the White House, the president uh, is keeping a close eye on. All right. Thank you very much for that, Reggie. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is Mornings with Simi. To say travel has been chaotic the last couple of months would definitely be an understatement, right? Just when we thought we were getting past everything that happened over the holidays. Now we get into January this morning. You may have been hearing in the news just a bit of chaos in the United States where they had a computer problem that grounded all domestic flights for a few hours because they were trying to figure out how to get this information to the pilots that they needed. So flights have now started to resume, but you're still talking about cancellation of thousands of flights, and that is right across the country there. Once again, chaos, right? People showed up thinking it was going to be okay today, and it was not. How can you protect yourself from you know, having things like that happen to you? Do you just have to learn to roll with it? Well, joining us now is Natalie Preddy, a travel and lifestyle expert. Natalie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. It feels like it's been one thing after another this this holiday season and trying to travel. Natalie, how can we protect ourselves? So, I mean, you know, like you said about rolling with the punches, I think uh, 
Um, you know, the travel industry is still trying to sort itself out, um, and we need to always pack our patients. But, yes, there are a few things that we can do. So um, checking your flight status constantly. Um, get the app for whichever airline you're flying with. That will give you an update. Um, on um, if any flights are delayed or canceled, and we'll give you your alternative. Sometimes you'll even know before the pilots or the crew what's going on. So I always say get the app of whichever airline you're flying with, and, of course, travel insurance. Now, a lot of people you forget about that. They're like, oh, I'll be fine. But, you know, especially if you have a connecting flight somewhere um, and that first flight is canceled or delayed and then you are going to miss your second flight, this is where travel insurance can come in and really help you out. Make sure you can get to your destination. Make sure your luggage can get there. I always recommend traveling with travel insurance. Don't you feel that like some Canadian airlines can really up their game when it comes to these apps? Because I've, I've traveled on some American airlines and done what you suggested there, downloaded their apps, and I have been amazed at the information that some of them have available on there. Oh, yeah. I mean, in Canada, we tend to be a little bit behind. I mean, um, when I fly throughout the States, you know, they have free Wi-Fi on board and and we'll tell you a lot more (laughs) what's going on. So, yeah, we're a little bit behind, um, I think, because there is such a monopoly in the airline space up here um, that, you know, when it comes to options, we have less. Uh, So, you know, they don't really need feel, I guess they don't feel the need to really up their game too much when the competition isn't, you know, that great. Right. Okay. So when it comes to travel insurance, though, Natalie, I mean, how difficult is it to get that money, you know, coming to you? Do you have to fill out forms? Like, I think people want it to be a simple process. Yeah, yeah. And you know what, it really depends on um, which uh, which insurance provider that you work with. I know I've worked with some where, um, I know Allianz, for instance, they have a global assistance um, individual, so you can call them and they will help you right away over the phone and you can deal with all the forms when you get back. Uh, they just really help you getting on the road or, or, or into the sky and to your destination. Um, but also, you know, and, and this is something that has come up a lot, especially with what we have seen in, in Mexico and, you know, people flying to places where there are travel advisories. I say as well, you should always um, let the Canadian embassy know where you are in a specific country. And that's really easy to do as well. You can just fill that out online. And, you know, if something happens and you're abroad, the government knows that, okay, if we're evacuating people, we need to get Simi out because we know that she's there. Right. Okay. And do you think any of this has deterred people? There have been so many problems over the last couple of months, even today. Look at what's happening in the United States. Do you think people are being kind of turned off a little bit? You know, I don't think so. (laughs) We are still seeing um, record numbers of people traveling. We are almost up to pre-pandemic levels. So everyone really, really wants to get away. And as we're heading into winter, you know, everyone is trying to head south, but it is a mission to get there. And, you know, I think we are still in for some more time of, of trying to figure out what's going on before we, before it's back. Well, I mean, was it ever really smooth? I think, you know, we've, Travel has always been um, a bit chaotic, and, and I think we are, we're, we've got some more, a few more months of that. Oh, boy. All right, Natalie, thank you for the advice this morning. <laughs> 
Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. That's Natalie Pratty, travel and lifestyle expert, uh, talking about, as Gore McDonald would say, packing your patient pants if you have to do some travel uh, over the next little while via an airport. Even this morning, right? We thought everything was behind us this morning in the United States. The Federal Aviation Administration had a computer outage on a particular type of system that was giving critical information to pilots. So then they had to phone in to get that information instead. And so they grounded all flights until they could figure out what was going on. They are now, seems like, back up and running. Things are going, but they're catching up, right? That was like four or five hours where every flight was grounded in the United States. It's a huge number there. So yeah, you just don't know what it's going to be these days when you show up. Is your flight actually going to take off? You know, if I get on a plane and the flight leaves on time and lands on time without disruption, I'm amazed I mean, that's pretty much what it's come to these days, isn't it? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about these new condo rules, rental rules that are causing some strata corporations to decide they're going to switch over to being a 55 plus building so that, you know, owners cannot rent out their suite if they need to. Uh, That is a loop. We say it's a loophole. Government thinks otherwise, but it sure seems that way. Let's talk more about this now with Tony Giovanti, who's the executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. Hello, Tony. Good morning, Simi. How are you this morning? I am good. Thank you. Tell me, have you been hearing about this from Stratus? Uh, Yes, we've seen Strata corporations, both small and large, from the inner cities right to the smaller communities that have been looking at amending their bylaws, and a significant number have already done it since the changes in November, uh, to try and limit the number of rentals. Um, So a 55 and over bylaw doesn't prohibit rentals, but it just simply means anybody who would rent in the building would have to be would have to meet those occupancy requirements of 55 and over. Okay, so what do you tell them when they're doing this? Like, because there's some caveats here, too, right, if they do this? Yeah, well, you know, it's not the only thing that they're doing is they're really limiting who can rent in their buildings. They're not prohibiting rentals. And it it does come with challenges. So people who are in the buildings at the time the bylaw is amended are exempt. But if you're a younger family and you have a child and you may have another child a year or two down the road and your family status changes, um, you, the newer family member, may be in violation of those bylaws. So the whole issue that the um, government was trying to avoid of families um, that have a child that have to move out because of age bylaws um, in buildings that adopt 55 and old, old for bylaws with younger families, this is still going to be an ongoing issue. So, you know, we're, we're cautioning everyone, get some legal advice when you're doing this to make sure that you're aware of what the implications are. Um, it could limit your market share, your market access. So, you know, you have a 55 and over bylaw, obviously whoever is going to be purchasing in there as an investor or as a resident is going to be looking at a 55 plus community. Um, you know, and the other side, is, is, you know, we see a trend with 55 and over buildings. They start out where, you know, people are healthy, people are in a, in a good age group between generally 40 and 65. And then in about 10 or 15 years, that community's aged significantly. And there's a real challenge to get people to sit on their strata councils and to be motivated for the long term of their building. So 
just need to be aware of what the implications are before you do this. Right. So the the property value issue, is that one do, that people generally underestimate? Well, it's an interesting, it's, an, it's a really interesting condition. Both rental bylaws and age restriction bylaws um, did have an impact on property values depending on where you were located. If you were located in a premium property zone such as Coal Harbor, a waterfront, the waterfront in Kelowna, I don't really think any bylaw affects property value because there are always buyers looking for them. Um, but if you're if you're not in a premium real estate zone and your market share is going to be limited and we're in a slower market, property values could potentially be affected. Yes. And, and even selling your unit and the time period that it takes to sell your unit may also be affected. So, you know, something to be aware of. I don't think it's a loophole. I think what it is, I think it's consumers who said, look, we want to try and limit the number and kind of rentals in our building. And about the only way we can do it now is by adopting a 55 and over bylaw. And it's going to limit rentals to people who are 55 and over. I feel like this is one of those issues, Tony, where in the moment residents might think it's a good thing. And then down the road, circumstances might force somebody in one of those buildings to need to rent out their unit or then they list it for sale and they find out it's not worth as much. And then I feel like there's going to be consequences. Uh, There are consequences to every bylaw that we adopt in strata corporations. And so this is one of those bylaws that is often referred to as a restrictive covenant because it restricts the um, age of persons who can live in buildings. I, I, I totally agree. Um, we recommend that everybody seriously consider the consequences of this before you do it. Okay, so you, you wouldn't recommend that stratas convert themselves? Uh, they Strata corporations, if you're going to adopt a 55 and over bylaw, um, you know, have a good information meeting, get some outside consultative advice. Um, and if 55 and over, over bylaws can also be um, tailored so that they have a broader um, occupancy availability. So we often see 55 and over bylaws that say the principal occupant must be 55 and over. And it allows flexibility for family status or for other conditions within families. It, it isn't just strictly isolated to everybody must be 55 and over. It really comes down to what people adopt as a new bylaw. All right. Interesting information. Thank you for that, Tony. Thanks a lot, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Tony Giovente, who's the Executive Director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. I think that's pretty valuable information there because we keep hearing about these buildings who are going to convert themselves to 55 plus just to avoid this rental rule. What the government did was they brought in a rule that said, you know what, stratas can't tell people that, that, you know, you can't rent out your unit. Units have to be, uh, let's say you get a job overseas and you realize, I don't want to sell my unit. I'll never get back into the market. Or you're going to have to move for a year or two. And you think, I want to keep this unit. You didn't think that when you bought the place, but now you want to rent that unit out and your strata won't let you. That is a situation the government is saying, no, no, you should be able to rent out your situation, rent out your unit. Uh, But if you are a building that is a 55 plus building, that doesn't apply. That's why these buildings are considering doing this. But Tony just in a very, uh, very succinct way showed why there should be a lot of concerns for buildings that are in a rush to convert themselves to 55 plus. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Single room occupancy hotels. It feels like as long as we have had them in this province, they have been controversial. They don't provide, you know, quality housing for people. And I'm sure you've recently seen pictures, uh, you know, in the media, on the news about the terrible condition that some of these SROs are in. We've got an estimated 7,000 people who live in Vancouver SROs in about 156 buildings. They're old, the buildings are. A lot of them are in desperate need of repair. They need maintenance. And you've got even the Premier now saying that SROs are not fit housing. So they're undertaking a review into single-room occupancy hotels. But this is going to take a while. And honestly, don't we know already that something needs to be done here? What should we be doing? Joining us now is Corrine Kirkpatrick, who's the uh, critic for the BC Liberals for housing and child care. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Cindy, for having me here. So when you hear about these SROs, like, what do you think we should be doing? Well, there's no surprise uh, in terms of what's happening right now. We've got a much worse, um, uh, you know, drug issues, crime, safety issues than we did five years ago. And so the folks that we've got in these SROs, our SROs now are much more difficult to house residents than they were in the past. Uh, but BC Housing and government has not adjusted the contracts, has not adjusted the resources to the new reality of what's happening with residents in these SROs. So we've known since uh, since the beginning that these are not the long-term solution for people. And they do not have supports wrapped around them. And with the mental health issues that we've got, when you put people together in SROs where it's already not uh, a feeling of, of home and safety, um, destruction's going to happen. Uh, it, it's not going to be treated well, and it's impossible to keep up with that. It's dangerous for everybody that lives in the SROs, and it makes it uh, just a terrible surroundings for them. Right. It's pretty clear, though. Even if I look online, you can see that there have been criticisms and concerns and talks about doing something about SROs for probably the last 10 years. Why haven't we done anything? Uh, I, I don't think uh, there's been a strategy for doing anything. I think that uh, previously, uh, you know, uh, with these P3s that have been referenced, uh, the P3s were actually an initiative between the federal government and the provincial government to do the initial renovations, to do the initial upgrades of the building. Where the problems have, have happened is over these past 10 years, the maintenance of these uh, SROs has not been invested in. And we haven't invested in that next stage of housing. We need to, these SROs were meant to be temporary and they're not being treated as temporary. They're being treated as warehousing. Once somebody gets in there, they really don't have any other support. So there needs to be a next step, a next phase somewhere to be able to move people along where they can have pride of home and they can have supports around them. Why this hasn't been done is that there hasn't been long-term planning, there hasn't been investment, and it's continued to get worse and worse over these past five years. Now, are you, are you at all surprised when you see some of the pictures of what some of these SROs look like? Well, to be honest, yes. I, I, I knew it wasn't good, but some of the photos that we saw this past week uh, were quite shocking. But I also want to point out that these, you know, the bathroom conditions that you saw, though it's not like that every single day forever without uh, these nonprofits and these owners coming in and addressing it. It's, it's that they can become that way again in a matter of two and three days because of the wear and tear 
um, and what's happening with the, you know, with the residents and the challenges that they're having right now. So, yes, I, I was appalled at the state that they were getting to, but I certainly wasn't surprised that there are broken bathrooms and, and broken elevators and, and that those things uh, are in that state. What would your advice be then if you were able to tell the government what to do here? Where would you tell them to even start? Uh, I would start by actually listening to the uh, to those who have contracts with them who are asking for more support, more staff to be able to work in those SROs, to be able to manage, to have 24-hour uh, support there so, uh, so residents uh, can be better managed and residents can have better access to assistance when some of these things are happening. But at the same time, we've, we've got to deal with what's happening today, but we have got to put investment into... Um, uh, into supportive housing where people can be supported, can have mental health supports, can have addiction supports. Right now, we've, we've got crime is rampant because of all of these other social issues. And that comes back to how people are living and where people are living. And it, it's having an impact on how those SROs are being treated. There's so many of them. Like, what do you do with people who are in them as you try to, where do they go if you try to fix this problem? Well, and that is the issue, is, is that I think that we can start to address it by by staffing up the existing SROs so that there's more supervision and that there's more support. But if there are not uh, treatment supportive housing being built um, and being open, not just being announced, but being built and being opened, there is nowhere for folks to go. It, it, you know, they're going to – some – of the residents are saying to us, we'd rather be living in a tent. We'd rather be at Crab Park. It's safer. At least we've got a sense of, of community there. So it, there needs to be someplace else other than um, SROs and, and that short-term uh, destructive nature uh, of, of being housed there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate it. That's Karine Kirkpatrick, who's the Shadow Minister for Housing and Child Care and Autism and Accessibility, BC Liberal MLA, talking about the housing situation in single-room occupancy hotels. Premier David Eby has been clear that he does not... He does not think SROs are fit housing. That's a quote, fit housing. This is Mornings with Simi. What can we do to improve our air quality situation in Metro Vancouver? We've kind of gotten used to these air quality warnings in recent years, haven't we? Wildfire smoke comes along and it becomes tough to get outside to exercise for so many people. Well, the Metro Vancouver Regional District would like to make this a priority for 2023. So how do they do that? What is this going to look like? Well, joining us now is Adrian Carr, the Vancouver City Councillor, of course, and outgoing chair of Metro Vancouver's Climate Committee. Thanks for joining us this morning. Oh, my pleasure, Simi. It feels like this has been a long time coming. Like, why hasn't Metro Vancouver acted before? Well, I think Vancouver, Metro Vancouver has acted. Um, you know, one thing I want to just tell, uh, tell your listeners is that Metro Vancouver is the only regional district in all of Canada that actually has um, authority over and responsibility for air quality. So we've been able to put in place measures that actually impact um, air quality to the good. Um, I'll give you one example, one uh, which is um, off-road diesel engines, which are, you know, really polluting and um, bad for air quality. Um, for many years, Metro Vancouver has required um, permitting for those off-road diesel engines. 
And uh, what you do is, uh, if you've got one, you pay a really hefty price for your permit if it's a badly polluting engine. Um, and those prices have gone up and up. And uh, the good news on that is if you decide to turn it in, which most people are doing and have done, um, you get a rebate um, for four years of having paid those fees so that you can buy yourself a new non-polluting or very, very reduced polluting off-road diesel, diesel engines. So that's just one example um, of action right. that has been taken. So what kind, What can we do, though, when it comes to wildfire smoke and the problems that we've had? Like, what kind of steps could Metro Vancouver possibly take? Oh, man, that's a big one because, of course, um, wildfires, uh, we're getting the wildfire smoke in, in um, Metro Vancouver, uh, not from within our own region. We're getting it from uh, farther east in the province. We're getting it from Washington State, even Oregon State. You've probably remembered those, those advisories. Um, and the first thing that Metro Vancouver does is issue advisories. They have health warnings for people to keep indoors. Um, the uh, most important thing, though, that can be done is not necessarily by Metro Vancouver, but by encouraging every single one of the 21 member municipal uh, jurisdictions that belong to Metro Vancouver um, to, within their own jurisdiction, create safe places um, and adopt building bylaws uh, that increase um, good air quality within their buildings um, so that uh, people should be putting in HVAC systems in in every building. They should be um, looking at uh, um, air exchanges or heat pumps um, that actually make sure there's not only clean air, um, but cool air uh, at, at the time of heat domes, which exacerbate uh, poor air quality. Um, so people in, you know, in every municipality then would have a safe place to retreat to. Okay, so is this a priority then for 2023? Um, it's one of the big moves, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, the big moves that uh, Metro Vancouver has in the Clean Air Plan um, relate uh, not just to buildings um, which are less under the control of Metro Vancouver and more under the control of member municipalities. So it's an encouragement, it's a commitment and a buy-in from member municipalities that's needed here. Um, but transportation is a big one and uh, transportation is the number one polluter within Metro Vancouver. Um, so uh, creating moves as I said, around diesel engines, um, but also around transportation in general um, and providing options for people so that you don't have to buy um, and use uh, gas guzzling and polluting vehicle in the future. And one of the the big moves there, of course, is improving regional transit, um, making sure that people have the chance to um, say no to using their car and yes, to using uh, transit, which is increasingly becoming electrified within this in the region. Right. So how long will it take, do you think, to develop bylaws on this? And then for those bylaws to really have an impact, that's the thing. It's a long-term issue, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's a long-term issue, but the problem is it's a short-term horizon for wanting to make the change happen, uh, not only to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and tackle climate change, which I think everyone is aware of, um, is accelerating and we need to act fast on. Um, But secondly, it's really important to um, engage um, players within the region. So we can at Metro Vancouver create um, restrictions for heavy industry and the pollution that's going on there. We have great partners that are making moves. Um, Port Metro Vancouver, for example, um, is actually uh, launched uh, an initiative to reduce the pollution that's caused by the trucks. Um, And trucks are a big part of the emissions that reduce our air quality in the region. Um, So they're saying older trucks that are heavily polluting are just not going to be allowed to come into the port 
that is really good news for people who live along Clark Drive or any of the routes that um, that access the port. And I mean, I think they've taken some heat for that. I'm super proud of them. Right. From what you described, though, it just sounds like this is going to be a, a long term process to make things better. Change doesn't happen fast. Um, I wish it did, but you're absolutely right, Cindy. It, um, it's because there's so many players um, that, that have to be engaged. So it's not just people, you know, truck drivers, people in the industry. It's people who own cars. It's, um, you know, the, the actual industrial uh, polluters. So every form of industry in the, in the region is agriculture. Um, you know, all of that. Um, plus municipal governments themselves um, in terms of creating the, uh, the, the laws, the building bylaws um, that create cleaner buildings, less polluting buildings. Um, so, yes, this is complex. We have to have the, the provincial government um, on board as well because some of these things, like regional highways, for example, are under their jurisdiction. Um, so, um, yes, <laughs> it is complicated. Yeah. But, you know, I really do believe that um, I've, I've seen some moves going forward that are heading us in the right direction. Uh, we just need to speed them up and uh, encourage everybody to become aware of what needs to be done and, um, and encourage them to do it. Well, thanks so much for your time this morning. Oh, my pleasure, Sammy. Have a great day. That's Adrian Carr, Vancouver City Councilor, outgoing chair of Metro Vancouver's Climate Committee, talking about priorities for the Metro Vancouver Regional District when it comes to air quality for 2023. Uh, yes, they want to develop new and strengthened air quality bylaws. Uh, what is it, like five out of the last eight summers, we have had terrible air quality because of wildfire smoke and other issues. It just all compounds. How do we improve that for people out there? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It's a compound that is made in part from a BC sea sponge. I know, it sounds bizarre, right? But this compound apparently is offering clues into how we might be able to prevent and even treat COVID-19 infection in humans. And this is all part of a new study that researchers at the University of British Columbia were involved in. So we thought, yes, we would like to find out more about this. Joining us now is Dr. Francois Jean, senior author of the study and associate professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at UBC. Thank you so much for being here. Well, good morning. How many different compounds did you investigate? Well, we, uh, we screened a library of about 375 uh, natural products that uh, we obtained from uh, five different countries. So not only Canada and BC and uh, Newfoundland, but also uh, compounds were obtained from the US, Italy, Brazil and Thailand. And so these are compounds that are made from what, natural sources? Yeah, so those are compounds that have been isolated from natural sources, yes. Okay, and so what did you do with them? What were you trying to test? Well, the, the idea is that, uh, you know, we knew uh, for uh, the last 50 years or so that natural products are uh, a very important source for, for antimicrobial agent and anti-cancer uh, drugs. So we decided to investigate if natural products could also be a good source of antiviral uh, drugs. And then uh, so we initiated that project uh, two years ago and we, we obtained, again, from collaborators, around the world, uh, their um, purified natural products, and we screen them against SARS-CoV-2 here at UBC in our Level 3 facility. And, and we discover uh, uh, three are actually uh, extremely potent. They are as potent as the 
uh, Health Canada approved drugs, Paxlovid and Redemsevir. And we still have another 25 that we identify in our screen that we're going to need to revisit against Omicron's variants. Okay, this is so interesting. And so when you say it was effective, in what way was it affected? Like, what did it do to the virus? Right. So when we test uh, uh, lead molecules uh, against viruses, we usually use uh, what we call a tissue culture-based system. So those are human cells that are infected with the virus. And then we assess the efficacy of the small molecules to block viral infection. So normally, when you get uh, effectiveness in the, in, the, in the nanomolar range, it means that you, you really have uh, uh, discovered very, very potent molecules. And, and that's exactly what we found for the three leads molecules. So their efficacy is as good, again, as, as El Canada approved Paxlovid and Redemsevir. Okay, so what are the next steps then? What happens now? Well, then the, the next steps for us is to uh, move this forward and, uh, and do what we call in, in our field a preclinical study. So we're going to be moving and testing those compounds in more advanced systems, such as the use of uh, a so-called human organoids and as well as small animal model to validate their efficacy uh, against infection. Um, and then, of course, we're going to need to and uh, this is already happening uh, since uh, the, the, the study was published yesterday. We're going to need to establish partnership with the industry to help us in developing those molecules. So if this works for in this circumstance, then, is there a broader application here? Like, can we test these same compounds and maybe there's other things that they also work on? Right. This is a great point. Uh, now we are c- currently uh, uh, testing our small molecules against uh, another virus of pandemic concerns, which is the influenza A H1N1, as well as the an emerging uh, viruses that uh, I'm sure uh, everyone knows about, the RSV, which strike about eight weeks ago across Canada. So the, the, the influenza A and the RSV virus are both viruses that are associated with viral diseases. So the goal, and we already have evidences of that, is at least one of our lean molecules is indeed a broad spectrum antiviral. So one molecule could be used to treat all three viral diseases. Is this a new approach, Dr. Jean, like looking in nature for these kinds of compounds, or is this something that we have always done? Yes, we've done it uh, quite a bit, actually, uh, back in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, that's how we discover most of the antimicrobial drugs that we use for treatment of bacterial diseases. But somehow, this has been overlooked uh, for some time now in the field of, uh, of antiviral drug discovery. And this, uh, again, become um, important to do, especially with the, 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 in 2019 with the emergence of SARS-CoV-2. And, and that would be a, a very um, um, important um, you know, application moving forward for other emerging uh, viruses, such as West Nile virus, which we have now in Canada, including Zika and Dengue virus in other parts of the world. So we're going to be busy uh, quite a bit in the next two years or so. So when you find something like this in a sea sponge that is effective, do you have to look for ways to then make a synthetic version of that? That's a very good point again. Yes, uh, actually, the 
one of the three molecules that uh, is coming from the RBC sponge here uh, have been uh, synthesized now in the laborat laboratory by Dr. Uh, Anderson, who is the lead author on that paper. So we can and uh, make analogs of that molecule and scale up the, the, the production. We could be making, uh, if needed, hundreds of milligram and kilogram for eventually commercialization of the, of, the, of the antiviral drug. Oh, wow. That is so interesting. Usually, I guess it does take years, right, to develop these things. But I guess because of the pandemic, there has just been a lot of scrutiny on, on COVID. Yeah, this is again an excellent point. The you know uh, uh, you know four years ago in 2019, probably for developing antiviral drugs, it would have taken in between 10 to 15 years. But you're absolutely right. Uh, with the after four years of pandemic, there's a very strong interactions between the academia and the industry. And then when there are lead molecules that are identified, very often uh, the, the to uh, initiate those studies with the industry, this is a very fast process. So uh, you've seen that with the mRNA-based vaccine technology. Within two to three years uh, that we, we achieve and develop those, those platforms and, and develop vaccine, the same thing is happening in parallel with antiviral drugs. So we're very confident that uh, at least one of our lead molecules uh, with the proper partnership, we could basically deliver this within five years. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Is this, is this a line of work that you have always been in or have things changed in the last few years? Are you exploring new areas? No, I think my, my lab at UBC for the past 20 years, I've always been concerned with, uh, with pandemic. And that's why we, I was uh, you know, uh, the lead on the establishment of, uh, of a facility to basically study those emerging viruses back in uh, 2004. And then, uh, in, uh, yeah, no, that's a high priority for my lab. And we were ready uh, uh, in 2019 when the, 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 the SARS-CoV-2 occurred because we have uh, the tools and the expertise to uh, explore and, and look into those antivirals. So we have been... Uh, um, very successful, I will say, in identifying lead molecules uh, for the past uh, year and a half now. Wow, great work. Well, thank you so much. That was fascinating. Okay, thank you. That was my pleasure. Okay, that's Dr. Francois Jean. Have a good day. That's senior author of the study and associate professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at UBC. Yes, fascinating talk that we had with him because they have been studying 350 compounds that are made from natural sources around the world, studying to see how they can be used for the prevention and treatment of COVID-19 infection in humans and found that a compound made in part from a BCC sponge may be able to help them out with that. And so now they, they still have, they said, a couple of dozen of these compounds to investigate, but they are having really good progress in trying to find some new antiviral drugs to treat COVID-19 and its variants. That is really fascinating stuff.